Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 17? Now, Genesis 16 ends with this verse, verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. So we see a 13-year gap between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. At the end of chapter 16, we saw the birth of Ishmael. That was Abraham's attempt to help God fulfill his promise. Uh, a real work of the flesh. And 13 years has gone by now. God is silent. I'm wondering what Abraham was thinking for those 13 years that God was silent. Was he thinking that he had forfeited the promise of God because of what he had done? Um, did he feel as though God had forsaken him for this whole you know, Ishmael debacle? I mean, 13 years is a long time for God to be silent. But then suddenly one day, God appeared to Abram and said, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Now, this is the first time, although not the last time, God will call himself by the title Almighty God. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. We know what El is, that's the name for God, it means God. But what exactly Shaddai means, we're not sure. Scholars don't really know. Some believe that the Hebrew word is a word that means to be strong. Others believe the Hebrew word means breast, as in female breast, a place of nourishment and life for a newborn. And I think if you were to take a little survey among the scholars, they would probably say, well, if we put it all together, then when God called himself El Shaddai, he was referring to himself as the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who is the source of life, the one who can do anything and meet any need. And I think that that pretty much sums up what El Shaddai is all about. Now, of course, by God calling himself that, he wasn't reminding himself of who he was. He was reminding Abram and us who he is. You know, guys, our relationship with God, whether we're talking about an Old Testament patriarch like Abram or a New, a New Testament Christian like ourselves, our relationship with God rises or falls on our understanding of who he is. That's just all there is to it. You know, our belief in his ability to um, take care of us, protect us, provide our needs, fulfill every promise he has given to us, is hardwired into whether or not we believe he is our El Shaddai, the awesome, all-powerful, and all-sufficient God who can do anything. So that's where our relationship with God begins, with a proper understanding of who he is, which then leads to our walk with God. God said, I am almighty God, what? Walk before me and be blameless. The word blameless there in Hebrew doesn't mean perfect, because God wouldn't tell us to be perfect. He knows we can't be, right? Uh, it's a word, though, that literally means whole, complete, uh, single-hearted. And I believe the Lord was saying to Abram, when you walk with me, I expect total commitment from you, which, in, which um, includes unwavering faith in my promises. Uh, Abram, I don't need you to help me fulfill my promises. I don't want any more Ishmaels in your life, is the idea. Walk with me in complete trust, obedience, and surrender. That's what God was saying to him, basically. And when God said, walk before me and be blameless, guys, listen. It wasn't just a challenge to Abram. It was a challenge to all of God's people, all of us who are the covenant people of God. God is saying, you belong to me now. 
walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless at work. Be blameless at home. Be blameless in private. Be blameless when you're on the computer. See, we have to understand something. In him we live and move and have our being. We live in an environment where God is always before us. He's always, we're always in his presence is the idea. And as such, wherever we go, whatever we do, all that we say, God is there watching, listening, observing. And you know what? God says, you belong to me. I don't want you to be like the world anymore. I want you to, to be conscious of the fact that I am always with you, and you represent me now. See, just like, uh, you know, as a kid, my dad used to say, hey, look, you represent me by the way you act. You are going to bring a reproach on our family's name or good things. The same is true in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We bear his name and all that we, all we do, all we say and whatever, it reflects on him. So God is saying, look, because you belong to me, I want you to walk in my presence blameless is the idea. Now in verse 1 again, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will, make a, I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, don't let this throw you. God had already made this covenant with uh, Abram back in chapter 12. That was when he first made it. Then he reaffirmed it in chapters 13 and 15. In fact, uh, we saw in chapter 15 how God added force to this covenant uh, to make it absolutely sure by having Abram kill some animals, lay the pieces on the ground. And the idea was that's how they entered into a covenant back then. The Hebrew word for covenant means to cut. Uh, it was a blood covenant, a serious contract between two parties, uh, usually. Uh, both had terms to fulfill in the contract. And uh, they would walk through the animal parts and would ratify the covenant or the contract that they were making with each other. Now, earlier, God had made a verbal promise. That's what a covenant is, a verbal covenant with Abram. But now, in chapter 15, he enters into what we call the verb, or a uh, formal covenant with him. The writer of the Hebrews tells us God did this purposely, that through two immutable things, God's verbal promise and his formal covenant, that salvation would be a sure thing based not on what we do for God, but upon what he's done for us, which we receive by faith. And now in chapter 17, God adds a sign. A sign. We're going to see that sign of the covenant he made with Abram would be circumcision. But right now, verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. And God says, I think, 24 times, I will, I will, I will. Just keeps promising Abram the things that God was going to do. doesn't ask Abram to do anything. Now, one thing, when God appeared to Abram, what did he do? Hit the ground, didn't he? I've heard some word of faith teachers say, yeah, I was shaving the other day and Jesus came right into the bathroom. And I had a conversation with him. I began to ask him things, you know, and this and that. And I thought if Jesus entered into your bathroom while you were shaving... You would have hit the ground, so you would have cracked your head open on the floor. Don't tell me God can walk in and you stood there like a hot shot and you're going to talk with him like you are his equal. This is, the, this is the culture we're living in. Oh, God's my buddy. 
We talk all the time. Yeah, you know, if he was here, I'd invite him to have a beer with me. You don't know God. Because if you really knew God and God ever showed up like he did with Abraham, you would do the very thing Abraham did. You would hit the floor on your face. That's how we respond to God when he really shows up, right? But Abram hit the floor and um, God said, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, you know, I like to just imagine myself in these situations, all right? Uh, For 99 years, people have been calling Abram, Abram, which means exalted father. Yet he had no kids. A little humbling, okay? Everywhere you go, hey, exalted father. I'm sure strangers were saying, wow, exalted father. How many kids do you have? None. None. But God told me I'm going to have some someday, you know? Okay, you know? Now God says to him, he's 99, he says, look, your name is not going to be Abram anymore, exalted father. Now I'm going to change it to Abraham, father of a multitude. So now he's going to go back to his wife and servants and go, look, you can't call me Abram anymore. Everyone's got to call me father of a multitude. And he still has no kids. Now we're going to see next week that Abram was held in high regard uh, by his wife and servants. But I have to believe some of them began to think, snicker a little bit. How many times a day was he called that? Hey, father of a multitude, dinner's ready. You know, father of a multitude, the calf is, you know, whatever. I mean, 50, 100 times a day he kept having to hear father of a multitude. Every time he did, well, it was God's way of reaffirming the promise. And yet the promise had not come yet. It's a long time in coming. In fact, when God first gave the promise to Abraham, he was 75 years old. 24 years has passed. He's, 90, he's 99 right now. Sarah's 89. It's a long time. Both of them, we know, were dead reproductively by that time, which means they were both incapable of helping God any longer to fulfill his promise to give them children. Notice, it's when they're both dead reproductively that now God is finally ready to fulfill his promise in giving them a son. But notice, it coincides with them dying in the flesh, so to speak, which now allows God to work in the spirit. And I further want you to see how God emphasizes this by changing Abram's name to Abraham. Notice that, Abraham. He inserts a breath sound right in the middle of his name. It actually is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But in Hebrew... The word for breath is ruach. It's also the word for spirit. In this instance, I believe, it refers to the Holy Spirit. And notice, as we're going to see, God does the same thing for Sarai. He calls her now Sarah. Again, breathing into her the breath of God. I I just have to see this in a symbolic way that God was saying, that he needs to wait for us to die to self and be filled with the Spirit before he can do for us all he desires to do. Sometimes that takes a long time because we can be tenacious, you know? We can go on thinking that we still have something to offer God. Lord, just give me a chance, okay? I can really show you I can do things for you, you know? I can build your kingdom. Well, as my pastor tells his testimony, 
He thought he had an awful lot to offer God. He thought he was going to take the world for Jesus Christ. And God had all kinds of energy, all kinds of ideas, he said, in ministry 17 years, laboring, laboring, and nothing really. Until he got so frustrated, so disillusioned, he basically was ready to quit the ministry and came to God one day and says, Lord, I can't do it. And God says, that's right. Now, step aside and just be available. And so God let Abram and Sarai use up all their physical vitality till they were elderly, they were uh, weak, they were dead reproductively, and now God says, okay, step aside. And this is what I've been waiting for. And breathes into their name the Holy Spirit, basically. Now, in a symbolic way, they are spirit-filled. The flesh, that's over, okay? The flesh is dead in a sense. They, they can't help God out anymore reproductively. See, the work of God is always of the Spirit. It is never of the flesh. Abram tried to help God out in his flesh, but God didn't even recognize that child, did he? In fact, we're going to see in chapter 22 when God tells Abraham to take Isaac, to offer him on Mount Moriah, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. God didn't even recognize Ishmael. Ishmael was a work of the flesh. God does not recognize the works of our flesh. He doesn't recognize service offered to him in our own strength. We have to be dead to self. We have to be broken and, uh, and all that we are just yielded to him that he will then do the work he wants to do through us. You know, God wanted Isaac's birth to be a total miracle, something Abram and Sarai couldn't accomplish in their own strength. And guys, this coincides with our physical birth and then our spiritual birth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. And uh, Jesus said, you know, unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was an old man and honestly didn't understand what that meant. He said, you know, I'm an old man. How can an old man crawl back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, no, no, you don't get it, Nicodemus. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. And I believe the context was water, not water baptism or anything. The sack of water that the child is birthed from in the mother's uh, womb. Okay, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And the reason I believe that's the correct interpretation is because Jesus went on to say that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Of course, our physical birth, that's natural. But our spiritual birth to be born of the spirit, that was a miracle, a total work of God. And that's what God was after here. He wanted to birth a child who would go on to be the lineage of the Messiah. And God didn't want anyone saying, oh, this was just the work of Abram, you know, as he doesn't want us to say, well, this is something I have done for God, you know. God wants to get all the glory, like Nebuchadnezzar, who was walking on the wall of his city one day because there was a, a walkway, you know, and looking at Babylon, which was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, this city, and said, oh, this great Babylon which I have built. And immediately got struck with madness. God won't share his glory with another. And we need to understand that. So Isaac was a total work of the Spirit, a miracle of a birth. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Now, again, he's 99 years old. I mean, I... 
I know he didn't disbelieve God, as we're going to see next week. But you know what? 99, and God is still telling him, not only are you going to have a son, you're going to be the father of many nations. Kings are going to come from you. And they certainly did. Okay? Don't forget, uh, not only did God give Abraham Isaac, who, of course, from Isaac down the family line there was born kings of Judah and, and Israel, uh, but also even through Ishmael, uh, princes were born in kings of the Arab world and so on. So God did make his name great. I will make verse 7 establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. Listen, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, as we've already seen, this covenant was unilateral and it was unconditional. Going back to chapter 15, when Abram cut those animals in two and laid their the parts on the ground, again, usually, uh, almost always, uh, a covenant was a bilateral thing. Both parties, you know, had terms that they had to fulfill, making this contract with each other to do certain things on both sides. And to ratify the covenant they, covenant, they would walk through the animal parts. But as we studied in chapter 15, God put Abram out. He put him out, okay? And only God passed through those animal parts, signifying this was not a bilateral covenant. In other words, two-party contract. It was a unilateral covenant. Something God was promising to do for Abram and his descendants, apart from anything they did or didn't do. Doesn't, he didn't say, I will be your God and give you this land if you do this. He didn't say that. God just said, I promise to give you the land. I promise to be your God, you and your descendants. I promise that nations will come from you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 12, verse 3. This was a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And therefore, guys, it was eternal and unforfeitable. We have to understand that, okay? As we've already pointed out, the covenant that God made with Abraham is connected to the new covenant that he made with us through Jesus Christ. We already studied this, okay? But both covenants uh, were of blood. Both were entered into by faith. Both were unconditional. And both were and are eternal. And just as there was no chance for replacement theology, because there's no replacing Israel with anyone else or anything else like the church because God made to them a unilateral covenant. Uh, no chance for replacement theology uh, with the covenant God made with Abraham and Israel. Uh, just as there's no replacing, no, we talked about how the new covenant is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, just as there's no replacing us under the new covenant if we fail in our relationship with God. Turn to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Excuse me, Romans 11, verse 1, I should say. Paul asks the question, I say then, has God cast away his people? He's talking about Israel. Has God cast away his people, Israel? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God is what? Irrevocable irrevocable because it was an unconditional promise now just the same is true with us under the new covenant once we receive christ 
once we are born of the Spirit, once we are the covenant people of God under the new covenant, can we forfeit salvation because we fail, because we blow it? Turn to John 6. Starting in verse 37, we read, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means what? Cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose what? Nothing. Isn't that interesting? I'm so glad he didn't say, well, I won't lose most. A few, but you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> no, I'm glad he, I'm glad he said, I, I will lose nothing. But should raise what? It up the last day. What is the it? The church. The body of Christ. Once we are in Christ, God does not see us individually anymore. He sees us as a unit. And God, Jesus promised right here, when we come to him, we are put into the body of Christ. He will lose none. He's going to raise the whole body up at one point. Resurrection in heaven and so on. Then he personalizes it. Verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise what? Him up the last day. So it's not that the Lord is not concerned about us individually. He's telling us that, look, individually, he loves us, has saved us, and once we've given our heart to Christ, he will raise us up. But you're, he wants to see it, us to see it in the, in the light of a bigger context. And that is, we belong to the body of Christ. And the whole body, the whole body is going to be resurrected to live with the Lord in glory forever. If you're a member of that body, don't think of yourself as some kind of a cell in a human body set off to the side. You belong to that body. In fact, you only find life in that body. Just like a human cell, take it out of the body, set it on, on the table by itself, it will die immediately. It needs to be in that environment. That's where it finds life. And that's where it causes the body to be healthy and productive okay just like being in the body of christ now john 10 verse 27 jesus and my sheep hear my voice and i know them intimately deeply personally is the idea and they follow me yes we follow the lord because we are his sheep following him doesn't make us his sheep we follow him because we are his sheep that's why Jesus said, if you love me, you belong to me, keep my commandments. Because those that know me, those that have a relationship with me, they will follow. They will obey. Verse 28, and I will give them eternal life. I'm so glad he didn't say, I'll give them life for a decade, and then we'll see how it goes. I'll reevaluate. Some people have a problem with this. How much clearer could the Lord have made it? If he would have said, I give them life for a century, what would you have said? How long is that? 100 years, right? I give them life forever. Well, how long is that? Does he say, unless they blow it? No. Eternal life is eternal the moment you have it. And by its very nature, it's unending life. It can't be interrupted. It can't be, uh, you know, something less than eternal is the idea. They shall never perish and the greek is never do anything to cause themselves to perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You talk about eternal security, folks, there it is. And that's just one of numerous places we can look at. The new covenant is eternal. I mean, once you're in Christ, I mean, once you're really saved, I don't know your hearts. I mean, you know, I'm assuming everyone here has made a genuine commitment to Christ. I believe you have, at least most of you. But once you've made a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ and you are in the body of Christ now, you've been placed there by the Holy Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we've all been placed into one body. Once you're put into the body of Christ, you are sealed there by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So if you, if you are born of the Spirit, then he's going to see you all the way to glory, you know? Those who he foreknew, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those that he justified, he what? Glorified. Okay. Well, Genesis 17, verse 8. And this is a verse I want to camp on just for a little bit. Very important. We've already looked at the implications a few weeks ago. But Genesis 17, verse 8, also, and he's still talking about this covenant now. He's talking about the things he's going to do for Abram and his, Abraham and his descendants now through this covenant. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Once again, notice that God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants as part of this covenant, listen, as an everlasting possession. In fact, 11 times in Scripture, God calls the covenant he made with the nation of Israel an everlasting covenant. Again, how can you break an everlasting covenant? Especially if it's unconditional, unilateral. We have nothing to do, or Israel had nothing to do with it. God made them a promise just based on who he was, what he wanted to do. And yet many today believe that because Israel rejected her Messiah, she as a nation has forfeited the promises of God, the ones that God gave to her under the Abrahamic covenant. And now the church, they say, has taken her place and has become spiritual Israel. This is the position that most Christian denominations, including many independent churches today, have espoused. It's called replacement theology. We talked about this a few weeks ago. However, guys, once again, you can't forfeit an unconditional covenant. Furthermore, furthermore, the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be rejected by Israel and crucified. Yet in all those prophecies, there is never any suggestion that because of this rejection of their Messiah, that God would break his everlasting covenant he made with Abram and his descendants. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Look, Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi, certainly understood the nation of Israel's history, understood the doctrines that he had given to them as a nation. Listen to what Paul is defending the fact that God has never set aside Israel. God has, I mean, rejected Israel. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about. The unconditional election of Israel is the idea. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God knew what he was getting himself into. God knew the rebellion of these people when he made the covenant with Abram. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? The Greek is rhetorical. Of course he hasn't. 
But he goes on to say, certainly not. So God knew these were rebellious. To say, because Israel was rebellious and they rejected their own Messiah, they forfeited these promises. No, that's exactly what the Bible says is not true. In fact, one author said, indeed, at the same time that God promises eternal blessings to Israel in a full restoration in the last days, see, God promised that they would wander. In fact, he would remove them from the land, but in the last days he would regather them. He wasn't done with them. He hadn't replaced Israel with the church. God was promising them these everlasting blessings, fully aware of how that they would rebel against him, promising them, though, in the last days he would restore them. The author says he also recites her unfaithfulness to him without a hint that the many sins of Israel and the Jewish people would be any deterrent to his fulfilling all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we know as God promised to give them the land, eventually, under Joshua, they went in and they finally took possession of it after they wandered 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And if God was going to reject them, that would have been a perfect time to do it. 40 years goes by. God says, Joshua, it's time to lead my people into the promised land. Joshua does this, and they begin to conquer the land. And they conquer, they possess not everything God gave them. If you look at the covenant God made with them, God promised that they would possess 300,000 square miles. They possessed about 30 at the height of their power under Solomon. But they went in and possessed a good chunk of it. But God knew what was coming. God knew it. In fact, he said when he made the covenant with the Jewish people, I mean, do you want to be my people? Oh, yes, Lord. I mean, I want to bless you. If you're my people, I'll bless you above every other nation on the face of the earth, okay? I just want you to obey what I, I'm going to give you the terms of the covenant, my law. I want you to obey it. Are you willing to do that? Oh, Lord, we will obey you. We love you. You know what God said? Oh, I wish it was in your heart to do all that you're saying. He knew what was coming. He warned them in advance. They entered in the land. It was even before Joshua died. They were already getting into idolatry. So much so you have to gather the whole nation in the valley of Shechem and challenge them to decide who they're going to still play games serving the world and God. Look, be honest. If you're going to serve the world and serve the Canaanite gods like you're doing right now, but if you really love the Lord, then you know what? Serve him alone. Because this is what me and my house are going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. Even before Joshua died, they were already serving other gods. And it got worse from that point, worse from that point, until finally, in around 722 B.C., God brought the Assyrians in and took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. Southern kingdom had some good uh, kings, some periods of real revival. But about 115 years later, they were so bad that God brought the Babylonians in and took them away captive. Now they're in Babylon. You would think if God was going to write them off because of their unbelief and, and faithlessness, this would have been the time to do it. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Now at this time, they're still in Babylon. But God makes them a promise to the prophet Ezekiel. Actually, it wasn't a new promise. He's just reaffirming the covenant that he already made many centuries earlier. Ezekiel 36, verse 11. And I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I'm going to bring you back into the land, and I'm going to bless you more than when you were first in the land. Wow. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, 
See, when God made an unconditional covenant with with Abraham and his descendants, with Israel, his name was on the line. His faithfulness to keep his word. This is the idea. God is saying, look, it wasn't about you. I knew you were rebellious. I knew you were going to fail me. I promised to do something for you beyond you, apart from you. My name is on the line. I'm doing this for my name's sake by bringing you back. I want to show the whole world my faithfulness is the idea. I don't do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of you, out of uh, your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Well, ultimately, the fulfillment was going to be in the millennial kingdom. But even before that, May 1948, God brought them back into the land as he had promised in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, the nation of Israel was born once again. In Ezekiel 36, verse 32, again, Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land was desolate, has become like the Garden of Eden. It was wasted and desolate and ruined, uh, the cities ruined, and now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. Not dependent on you. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, God is talking about how he's going to bring them back into the land the second time, which again happened in, uh, it started to happen before May of May 14th, 1948, but that's when they declared themselves a nation again. But God will go on to say that this land of Israel, which was desolate when they first came back, it was, it was as I said, the Turks owned it for a lot of years, and they taxed people based on the number of trees they had in their land, so people cut down the trees. The topsoil washed away. Uh, the uh, the uh, delta from the Mediterranean silt, uh, silted up and the uh, salt water backed up onto the land, the plain of Sharon, very fertile place. The whole thing was like a desolate wasteland. Israel bought this land for practically nothing, but they bought it. They didn't steal it. They bought it, began a reforestation project, planted eucalyptus trees all over the place, which soak up a lot of water, and they turned it into the Garden of Eden. To, and God says, you will fill the earth with fruit when this happens. Today, Israel is the third or fourth largest exporter of fruit to the world in the world. All that came true. Listen, guys, we're talking about Israel, who was given a land by God, who was taken out of the land for a time and brought back to the land. Listen to me. The church was never given a land. It was never scattered from that land, and it was never brought back into that land. The only way replacement theology proponents 
can make these scriptures and many others like them refer to the church and not Israel, listen, is to spiritualize them to death. And that's what they have done. So unless you are going to spiritualize all of these scriptures that are clearly spoken to Israel and not to the church, listen, there is nothing in scripture that supports replacement theology. Uh, I think that Dave Hunt nailed it when he said, and I quote, the Jewish people stubbornly continue to exist when they should have been wiped out long ago. In fact, the existence of the Jews today and of their presence in Israel and the rebirth of the nation of Israel constitutes one of the greatest proofs that God exists and the Bible is his word. And if you try to spiritualize this and turn Israel into the church, you have pulled the rug out from under some of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies concerning the return of these people to their land and that, in fact, they will be born in one day. May 14, 1948, the nation of Israel was born. One day, they declared themselves a nation, just like God said. Paul in Romans 10 begins this way. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear the record that they have a zeal after God, but not according to knowledge. Hunt says, now put the church in there, because in this theology, the church replaces Israel. So everything the Bible talks about Israel, it's really about the church. Paul says, my prayer and desire is that Israel be saved. Hunt says, look, put the church in there. Now Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the church is that they might be saved. He says, that's ridiculous. He says, wait a minute. You have to be saved to get into the church. So the church still exists today, and Israel still exists today, but they are two separate entities, unquote. And that is absolutely true. God has a plan for Israel. God has a plan for his church. Israel was set aside when they rejected Messiah, but they were not replaced. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 11. Israel was set aside because of unbelief, and the church age was inserted into the time between Israel's apostasy and their, you know, revival. So we have the church age. And once the church is gone, God will turn again to the nation of Israel because he still has plans for them. He's going to save 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be like Paul the Apostles going out into all the world and preaching the gospel. It's going to be an incredible time. God is not done with the nation of Israel. And why is that so important for us as Christians? Why do I keep harping on that? I mean, why do we spend so much time in this study talking about how that God has not replaced Israel? She has not forfeited the promises God has given to her. Why should we care what happens to Israel? Listen to me. If everlasting concerning the covenant that God made with Israel doesn't mean everlasting, then how can we trust the covenant he made with us when he promised us everlasting life? is something we can trust in. To those who have received Christ, how can we be sure? If God told Israel, I'm making an everlasting covenant with you, oh, but you weren't faithful, so you blew it, you're, you're done. Well, then how can we be sure that the everlasting covenant he made with us through Christ, he's going to keep that promise if we are not perfect and we don't fail? Look, that's why our understanding of Israel and God's promises and faithfulness to Israel is so vital vital to our understanding of God's plan and promises he made to his church. Again, God's character is on the line. The survival of the Jewish people, guys, throughout history is a testimony to the existence and faithfulness of God. Maybe you've heard this. 
One day Queen Victoria said to her prime minister, she said, show me one thing that proves the Bible is absolutely true and God is real. His response was interesting and right on the money. He said, the Jew, madam, the Jew. There should be no reason on this earth that these people should still be alive. Hated by everybody. A little country the size of New Jersey, surrounded by 80 million enemies, they should not be alive. The fact that they exist to this day is a testimony to God's existence, who is watching over them and keeping his promise to them that they would go before him forever. Now, we know that, right? I mean, the land that God gave to Israel is a part of an everlasting covenant that he made with Abram and his descendants. I mean, that can never be forfeited. We know that. Guess what? The UN doesn't know it. Palestinians don't know it. Our president and this administration, they don't know it. But you know what? To not know it and to do anything to put Israel in a very precarious place I shudder. I shudder for my country. Because the promise that God made to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, still stands. Still stands. Well, Genesis 17, verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now once again, circumcision was not the covenant, but it was the sign of the covenant. Circumcision was to be an outward sign, listen, that represented an inward spiritual truth. What was that truth? Well, before I get to that, let me just say this. It was an outward sign that would remind the Jewish people of the covenant that God had made with them. When God makes a covenant, he often gives a sign that represents it. Okay, Just like when you enter into the marriage covenant and the wedding ring is a sign or a symbol of that covenant. That ring is not the covenant. You can take the ring off and you're still married. The point is, though, it's just an outward sign that testifies of a spiritual or a inward reality now unfortunately the jewish people eventually made the ritual of circumcision necessary for salvation in fact to them it became salvation didn't matter how they lived in fact they didn't even believe a jew had to believe in god as long as they were circumcised they were saved so that's where they went in fact many years later many centuries later when paul the apostle would go into an area and preach the gospel of grace and people were converted gentiles and churches were planted after he would leave town, the Judaizers would come in. Who were these guys? They were probably Pharisees and all who claimed to be Christians, but were still very much involved in the law. They would come in, and they would tell these new converts, Gentiles, look, Paul's mistaken, okay? If you want to be saved, and you want to be a Christian, you've got to first get circumcised, keep the law, then you can believe in Christ for salvation. Well, Paul was livid about this. And in Romans chapter 4, turn there, please. He takes these people to task theologically. Romans 4, starting in verse 9, middle part of the verse. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That's right. He was declared righteous because of his faith. 
in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. How was it how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? <laughs> Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, the Gentiles, and uh, the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, not only Jewish, but also who walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. Paul's point is this, look, God declared Abram righteous because of his faith in Genesis 15, verse 6. And for 14 years later, then, he was commanded to be circumcised. Paul says, this, God did this purposely so that you wouldn't confuse the ritual with the reality. The reality is you're saved by faith, apart from works. The symbol, well, that's an outward thing. But that doesn't save you. And God did this to show the Gentiles they didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. Because as God called the Jews when they were circumcised and the Gentiles as they were not circumcised, it was all faith. That was the, that was the key. That was the, everyone got saved by faith, not any outward ritual. In fact, one author says, and I quote, circumcision was not the means of Abraham's salvation, I like this, but the mark of his separation as a man in covenant relationship with God. Again, circumcision was an outward ritual that represented, listen, the separation from the world of God's covenant people. He had separated them from the world. He had made a covenant with them, and as such now, they were set apart. Circumcision was a symbol of that separation. We call it holiness, was the idea. But the Jews began to put their faith, as I said, in the ritual of circumcision, blind to the reality it was designed to represent. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. Here's what God really meant the ritual of circumcision. Not that the actual cutting away of the flesh did anything spiritually for them. It symbolized an inward truth that God was really wanting to emphasize. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your what? Heart. And the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Remember now the people are steeped in idolatry and apostasy by this time? Of course, they're all circumcised. They all believe because they were circumcised. They have, they're saved. doesn't really matter how I live. I'm circumcised. I'm in. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. God said, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Again, circumcision symbolized the cutting away of the uncleanness of the flesh. And the idea was you were cutting away something unclean from your body as a symbol that your whole life was to be set apart for God now, sanctified and holy. You're God's covenant people. Of course, again, the legalistic element in the early church, well, they wanted to make circumcision and obedience to the law of requirement for salvation for the Gentiles. Of course, the first church council, Acts 15, was convened to, to wrestle with this very issue. At the end, they decided, no, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You know, and they said, just by, it's just by faith. In fact, in Galatians 6, verse 15, 
Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. New creation means when you give your heart to Christ, you become a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. It doesn't matter if you were circumcised or uncircumcised. The issue is believing in Christ. Colossians 2.11, Paul said, In him, Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made what? Without hands. Not literal circumcision. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul is just using circumcision spiritually here. He is saying, look, this is what God wanted all along for the, from the ritual of circumcision. It wasn't the ritual that saved anybody. What God wanted it to do was to um, symbolize the fact that you were cutting away from your life that which was unclean. You're God's people now. You're to live a holy life. So when we accepted Christ, the Spirit of God moved in and circumcised us spiritually. What do you mean? Well, he gave us a heart for holiness, a heart of obedience, right? He, he circumcised us, but not with hands. It was, wasn't a literal thing, but the holiness that God always intended through the ritual of circumcision that represent that, through Christ, he circumcised us in the heart when he moved into our hearts as we gave our hearts to him through faith. Again, the Jews made circumcision essential for salvation, just like a lot of Christians do with water baptism, which essentially is saying the same thing in a different way. We take somebody down to the lake or river or the pool, we dip them in water after they've received Christ. It symbolizes the washing away of the filth of the flesh. And when you come up out of the water, it signifies you're a new creation, resurrection life, you belong to God, start living a new life. That's what it means. Same thing as circumcision meant really in the Old Testament. And just like every male baby in the Old Testament on the eighth day was to be circumcised according to Leviticus 12.3, again, this brought them, and I want you to see this, because I don't want you to get confused. Circumcision brought these Jewish boys into this covenant relationship with God, into the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. Uh, the baby was now considered a part of God's covenant people, his elect, his elect. Listen to me. That didn't mean circumcision saved him. I mean, because the baby couldn't exercise any faith at eight days old. I mean, it was just a ritual. He was now part of God's covenant people, though, which meant he was in a special place of blessing. As the elect of God, it simply meant that God had set aside these people to bless them, watch over them, provide for them, okay? This baby still had to grow up and exercise faith in his own heart towards the God of Israel to be saved because this ritual didn't save him. People think water baptism. If I can just get my kid baptized as a baby, they're, they're saved. No, no, because they, they can't exercise faith. I mean, you know, they have to get old enough where they can understand what they're doing and receive Christ into their own heart is the idea. Circumcision was important as a ritual, but it didn't save. Again, Abraham was saved 14 years before he was circumcised. Another good example would be Ishmael. As we're going to see next time, Abraham uh, circumcised Ishmael, and yet he never showed any evidence of salvation because, guys, rituals like circumcision and water baptism never saved they are simply outward symbols that point to an inward spiritual truth. Either you have a relationship with God or you don't. The ritual is meaningless without it. All right, let's uh, get as far as verse 14. But verse 12, 
God said, He who was eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Okay? Uh, it's interesting that God told the Jews to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. The day that we now know is the day when an infant's immune system is at the optimum level for such a procedure. Curious coincidence that God picked the eighth day. Also, vitamin K, which is a clotting agent, reaches its full strength on the eighth day. And another blood clotting agent, prothrombin, is at 30% on the third day. It's at 100% on the eighth day, making the eighth day the earliest and best time to circumcise a, a Jewish boy, baby. But again, I'm sure God didn't know that. It was just something he stumbled on by accident. Verse 13. He who was born in your house, and he who was bought with your money, must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who was not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, the Hebrew word for cut off can sometimes mean killed or executed. But most of the time it means just removed from the covenant or set aside. No longer a part of what you know, the covenant people of God is the idea ostracized, uh, alienated. Um, by saying they would be cut off, God was just simply saying that they would be cut off from the life, the blessings, and the protection of the covenant people of God. Now, in the new covenant, in the new covenant, when a Christian stops living a holy life and walks away from God, gets back into the world, well, they're cut off too, aren't they? But how are they cut off? Well, they're cut off from the practical flow of God's blessings, protection, provision. God's not going to bless a person who's living in sin. In fact, he wants the world to beat them up so they get their hearts tenderized and come back to him. They are cut off from him in a sense practically, but not positionally. If a person who is a Christian is backslidden and they die in that backslidden state, they go immediately into the presence of God because they are saved by their faith, not their works. But on a practical level, a practical level, when we walk away from God, we are cut off from the flow of his blessings and so on until we get our life right with him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we are reconnected to God in a practical sense. Just like Israel was always blessed when they were in the promised land, which spoke of the life of the Spirit, so God's people in the new covenant are always blessed when we're in the Spirit. We get into the flesh, we cut ourselves off from the flow of God's blessings. So it's not the same, but you see how it kind of correlates with each other. Well, we'll leave it there, and God willing, we'll pick this up next week, looking at verse 15 of chapter 17. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as we have come to chapter 17, there are some important issues that we needed to stop a little bit and consider. And Lord, now as we begin to move uh, past chapter 17, we will see, Lord, the narrative pick up. But Lord, we thank you that we have to lay these, you, you know, you want us to understand these things, these lessons that we have been learning about covenants, about your faithfulness, about how the promise you made to Abraham, well, the promise that you made to us through Christ is connected to that. 
And Lord, if you can't be trusted to keep an everlasting promise to Israel, why should we trust that you're going to keep an everlasting promise to us that we will live with you forever in your, in your kingdom? But we know, Lord, that you are true and faithful. So, Lord, thank you that even when we blow it, even when we walk away, yes, you'll chasten us. But, Lord, you're always there ready to receive us back. And we'll never be kicked out of the family because we always belong to you from the moment we receive Christ. We'll always be your child. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.